A couple of weeks ago, I was thrilled to be invited to speak at a local consulting firm here in Stockholm. One of the employees at this consulting firm uh, listens to this podcast and uh, he reached out to me since we were both in Stockholm and he said, um, why don't you just come and uh, present the work of Nassim Taleb to, to me and my colleagues in really the vaguest way possible. So I ended up uh, standing in front of a room of about, I don't know, 20 to 30 people and <laughs> presented uh, and introduced mostly, in fact, almost exclusively, there was probably one or two people in the room that had heard of Nassim before. And this was the first time I had presented the work of Nassim Taleb to another person that wasn't just a personal conversation. So I really like publicly speaking and think about presentation skills a lot, you know, and this is something that I'll take very seriously in my professional life. But I figured this was a rather intimate affair um, rather than a sort of professional presentation. And so I thought I could maybe hedge my bets in case it didn't go so well um, by presenting it uh, less seriously. So a lot more casually, a lot more rough, uh, sort of less refined. And this kind of lowered the expectations of my uh, credibility coming into it because I'm not an expert on Nassim's ideas and I'm not a mathematician. And I just never want to present myself as someone who really knows Nassim. I just want to present myself as someone who is very similar to you. You know, we, we're just fans of the way uh, that recognizing randomness in the world can fundamentally shift your worldview. That That's all it is. None of us are really experts on the ideas of Nassim Taleb. Only Nassim Taleb is and a couple of other sort of academics out there. We're very big fans of the work and we're very interested in it. And we take extreme curiosity in the ideas that come out of the inserto. But to present yourself and in my case to have presented myself as, as an expert just felt totally wrong so yeah I wanted to lower the uh, <laughs> the 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 bar of expectations a bit you know obviously it's it's always best to under promise and over deliver but but that is what this podcast is it is a copy of the recording of that presentation I trimmed it down hopefully to uh, rough out some of the edges but before we do it I just want to say as an, as a disclaimer that this was recorded on a computer microphone. And so for that reason, the audio isn't as crisp as I'd like. And as well, also beware that I'm speaking to a room of people live. So this isn't a sort of organized talk or it, 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 it's not going to be presented as an organized podcast. It's a discussion of the ideas of Nassim. Um, specifically a discussion of how can we predict a future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past. So in there, we mostly will talk about the black swan, anti-fragile skin in the game and the minority rule. I would have loved to have gone into mediocre stand, extremist stand, which is probably top two, maybe favorite um, takeaway from the whole inserto, but but I haven't quite figured out how to best present uh, that idea. But before I explain, I just want to say, guys, I really hope you enjoy it. And I really, really, really appreciate deeply the fact that I have the privilege to speak with you. And um, I don't want to take it for granted. So forgive me if the podcast isn't as as crisp or as good as you'd like, but just know that I, um, I, I definitely notice and am consciously aware of that it is. And um, I want to do it better. But before, before I play the recording, I want to just say it would be a thrill to direct your attention to the podcast that I spend pretty much all of my free time on. It's my interview podcast titled A Curious Worldview. 
So many of you probably have heard me shill it here before, but I just want to shill it again, especially to a new listener. I'm approaching about 100 episodes now over there, so there is a healthy library for you to dig into. The guests so far have ranged from economic development. We had uh, the Wealth of Nations, James Robinson, Tim Butcher and the Broken Heart of Africa, Jim Henry, who's the godfather of kleptocracy and financial secrecy journalism, all the way to one of my favorite episodes with Jack Weatherford, the author of Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, podcasts on geopolitics with the absolute best in their field, as well as a top to bottom on the semiconductor industry. I have some of the best photographers in the world on someone who will go down as in history as one of the best wildlife photographers of all time, Marcel Van Oosten. As well, recently, there's been a lot of episodes top to bottom on the promise of geothermal. In and amongst that, I'm, I have a bunch of episodes on famous explorers and adventurers from history, people that I just project onto completely. And some of my most famous guests are actually the ones that are incoming. They're currently being edited in, in the uh, pipeline, as they say. So it will come. And it's super easy to subscribe to this podcast and it would be a huge, huge um, help and benefit to me if you all did that. So please consider swiping up your phone now and clicking the top link in the episode description and subscribe. If the link doesn't work, please take the extra effort and Google the Curious Worldview in whatever the search function it is that you're looking on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, whatever. Now, Obviously, not every episode will be for you, but since we are met here discussing the work of Nassim Taleb, I'm assuming that we have quite similar interests. So there will be occasional episodes in there that suit you as well. So swipe up now, subscribe, and then in a few seconds, I will play my presentation of Nassim Taleb to the Milton consultancy firm here in Sweden. Okay, amazing. So as, uh, as Pedro introduced, this very handsome man here, is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Lebanese-American author. In the five books, which comprises this series of books, there are a few that I'm sure you've heard of. In order, they're written Full by Randomness, The Black Swan, uh, The Better Procrastes, Anti-Fragile, and Skin in the Game. So you guys are a consultancy firm. I'm sure you have a lot of Management 101 business language, which is flying around a lot. People talk about anti-fragility all the time. They talk about Skin in the Game all the time. They talk about The Black Swan all the time as well. Um, so he writes, if you ingest the books fully, you know, it, it's so compelling. It can be the type of ideas that just worm into the base of your skull and do change the sort of outlook on the on life, the way you see, the way you think about randomness risk, but most importantly, the way you think about serendipity, the way you think about chance and so forth. So I'm in the first few slides I'm going to try and explain as much as possible without the full context of his books, how it might have affected me, and then some ideas then from the book. So any Danes in the room? So this is a quote of Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish guy, and he wrote this well before in the sim lived, obviously, but I think it encapsulates perfectly the magnum opus of what all Taleb's work is. That is, life can be understood backwards but it must be lived forwards. Taleb repurposes it as, how can we predict a future of infinite possibilities based off our finite experience of the past? You know, so I presume most of the room is Swedish. You know, as you were at, say, this point in your life, did you know, say, 18, or before you met your partner, maybe there's some single people in the room, you haven't met the partner yet. The type of moments there that completely changed the direction that your life was going to take. 
you know, are so significant and crucially, mostly completely random. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's an exciting thing to think about because as Taleb goes on to talk about, particularly with this idea of anti-fragile, you want to embrace randomness, accept randomness and try and map it out as best you can. But as you stand here, you're like today, you know, who's to say what the next, who's to say which path you're going to take? You get a tap on the shoulder tomorrow. The, dr the dream job of your life in Nairobi has opened up. It's just for you. Take it. You know, how divergent are the paths that the life could take? And that looks into this thing, the black swan. So, um, again, please interrupt me. Give me some feedback if it's, you know, too fast or not understanding or qualifications and so forth. Uh, the Black Swan is the second book in the installment, and I'm sure you've all heard of it. Actually, has anyone heard of it? Or no, heard that the film, but yeah. that's nothing to do with that. No, <laughs> perhaps you could give a quick synopsis. No, I just, I wouldn't do a synopsis of it, I just heard of it. Or your understanding of it. No, I leave that to you. The notion of completely outsized, unpredictable events that obliterate and shift whatever your risk profile of a particular market, a particular um, population is. And I mean, try and think about this in your own work, the, all the different clients who work with, the different industries that they're in, the way that maybe you interact with each other or interact with them. What are these crazy outsized events that you never had, saw coming that came in completely um, shifted? you know, the way that you have to look at everything. And so the point of thinking of a black swan is, you know, what, what can be done about them and how can you, I mean, they're inherently unpredictable. So you can never properly predict them exactly, but how can you become resilient to them when they eventually might come into your life? And the black swan is not just negative. You know, you, you run into the salad line, the person that becomes your wife or husband. That's a, that's an out, that's an outsized high impact event that you did not see coming, you didn't prepare, you didn't try and make happen, it's completely random, but the effects on your life and then the effects on everything else are evidently clear. So I'm speaking with consultants, let's define what a black swan is uh, definitively. So extreme event, 9-11 is clearly one. If you were in walking the streets of Manhattan on September 10th, you were completely unprepared no one has thinking about what was going to happen the following day and the way that shifted an entire city's culture and then financial markets as well, but then as well, so many other things. Um, the fact that in Alanda there is such strict um, airport security is largely consequence of an event that happened across the other side of the world that no one saw coming, right? Billions of dollars converted just like that. It's new industries into new practices because of a black swan. The Indonesian tsunami, uh, once in a thousand year weather event, sure, maybe it comes around once in a thousand years, but it's a black swan if you can't say definitively the time and day that it's coming because you cannot then adequately prepare for it. They have an extreme and outsized impact. Imagine if you were a Mayan in Veracruz and you see over the horizon come this vessel full of Spanish people with horses. It is an extreme, it's a not only life changing, it changed the course of an entire continent, millions of people's futures. Great example of a black swan, completely unpredictable. They thought they were gods when they came off the ships. The invention of penicillin, a glorious Australian, Mr. Howard Florey, um, left his 
Patriot shout overnight, accidentally. He made a mistake. That moment of serendipity, total positive black swan, unpredictable. It was in none of the predictive models of the future that him and his team of brilliant scientists were working out. Yet, the impact of penicillin, I think it's it's like the base of antibiotics, right? So large, large impact. Finally, only explicable after the fact. So crucially, 9-11, you can say, look at the rise of Islamic extremism in these countries. Surely a terrorist attack isn't coming. Oh, there were even potentially people was, um, potentially some intelligence came in that said this exact event was going to happen. It's only explicable after the event. In the same thing, colonization, the election of Donald Trump after he was elected, everyone had a, a good reason for why he was elected. Everyone could explain, hey, this is why Donald Trump was elected. But I don't know if you remember, but whilst it was happening, it was a joke. It was an unbelievable outcome that he could possibly get elected. And so I view that as a black swan event. Changed the direction of the largest economy in the world's culture, you know, um, and the amount of, again, financial implications, the, the way money is re-diverted when big events like that happen. Cattles of World War I, um, huge black swan event completely redirected the future of uh, the European continent. Um, and I should also say as well that if hopefully this all makes you interested in the Sim and his books, and then you ingest them in your own time and you can see from him, because something about the Sim is that he's an incredibly, um, he's just, is he's, he's one of these sort of tail end outliers when it comes to the ability to communicate. He will neatly wrap up what I just stumbled through with a nice clean aphorism and it makes it very understandable so I would encourage you to read it. Now the answer to the last one this maybe becomes a bit more personal another buzzword another title of a book he wrote anti-fragile the idea of gaining from disorder you know Nietzsche said uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger Kanye West said that that don't kill me will only make me stronger it's true um, think about when you go to the gym Pedro and I um, were arm wrestling. He's much stronger than he looks. So he was. Uh, <laughs> None of this ever happened. So he, when he goes to the gym, what's he doing? You know, he is um, using an isolated um, uh, exercise to do micro tears in the muscle. And every single rep you do actually hurts you physically. But then you go to sleep, you eat something, you come back, and it heals back stronger. The human vessel is a perfect example of what it is to be anti-fragile. The same can be said for education, knowledge, self-development. These are all things that make you stronger, right? By hurting a little bit, by realizing a weakness, by physically undergoing a weakness, you then become stronger. One huge important caveat to make is that enough disorder can break anything. So Nietzsche was wrong. That doesn't kill you, doesn't always make you stronger. If you're hit by a car and both your legs are taken out, you're not coming back stronger, right? So there is a threshold for disorder. And I won't talk about it here, but I think the, um, and test the room on it, but I um, did a podcast about antidepressants and antifragility. because so I think they fit into this um, model very neatly. But if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it later, but I think it's a uh, fascinating look at an application of uh, antifragility. So, Embracing randomness is far less than ignoring it. If you uh, decide to close your eyes to the world and not embrace the risk or not at least notice the risk, you know, um, you can still make it to the end. You can still lead the 
you can you can get lucky. You can lead the good life, have a fulfilling job, have a loving family, have a nice standard of living. But you got lucky for that. What is better is to try to at least as much as we can recognize the risks and embrace the randomness so we can improve from the small hits that we get. I mean, this organization is anti-fragile. You guys just won another uh, uh, an award for being an amazing agency, right? So I assume you don't repeat mistakes much. If you make a mistake, the idea is that <laughs> you're not gonna make that mistake again. You improve from it. You become more of an anti-fragile organization because of that and individually as well, mistakes that you might make. Um, and all of the individuals in this organization, every time they improve a little bit, the whole organization becomes a little bit better. It's this notion of learning from the mistakes, embracing the randomness, your you know, resilience gets a little bit bigger over time. But on the caveat, if you were to say, you know, uh, just make a, a unforgivable mistake to your biggest client, that's exceeding the caveat for the disorder. It's not. Anyway, so uh, Taleb writes, I take risks crossing the road every day. So according to you, I should just stay home in a state of paralysis. The answer is that we don't cross the street blindfolded because if you think about this as a, analogy for life there could be some fool who is blindfolded and runs across the street and he gets the other side and he's uh got a better standard of living than you and he uh, got the job ahead of you and everything but like he got lucky that he wasn't taken out along the way okay the answer is that we use sensor information to mitigate our risks and reduce exposure to extreme shocks so Although some other people might be lucky or some other organizations, maybe they have this legacy of hundreds of years of goodwill at their disposal. McKinsey and company, are they better than Milton? I, I, probably not, you know, BCG, whatever, these like legacy organizations, they might get the biggest clients, the best deals, but they are largely, you know, I can't speak with authority on this, but I would say maybe they're free riding a little bit off great reputations or just being the biggest, baddest guys. Are they necessarily fully, you know, blindfold off looking at the world as much as you? I, I that analogy made a little bit of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, Steve Jobs' quote, um, which is repurposed for end fragility. You know, eliminating obvious downsides like bad habits and debts, write a good life. But eliminating good things as well so you can focus on the very best will lead to a truly flourishing life. Um, this notion of addition via subtraction, thinking about you know improving. That's the whole point of antifragility, improving from disorder. If you're a smoker, what's the best thing you can do to improve your health? Yes, Quit smoking. Remove something. So get better by removing something. You know, paradoxically enough, we maybe don't need to eat three meals a day, right? Um, as much as it's nice to eat three meals a day. Paradoxically, um, lying in bed doing absolutely nothing, experiencing no risk, no damage to the body is one of the least healthy things you can do. You know, that's like an interesting, I don't know, just dichotomy of life. How is that so? How is it that we're built that we will only improve from disorder necessarily? And then how might that look in an organizational level? How might that look at your individual relationships levels? Right? Like people say communication is the key to a good relationship. Yeah, sure. Like addressing things that are that are tough and hard, going through what is the conversation you want to always put off. 
you become stronger from that. And that's professionally and that's also, you know, interpersonally as well. Um, so I love this idea of via negativa, addition via subtraction. You can think about it in many, uh, uh, many. Oh, and this is, this is, um, these, this is a photo of three candles. Um, but the quote behind them, I think, is one of the most just crisp, pure, beautiful bits of writing from Taleb. And think about it in the context of what we've just said, or what I've just said with anti-fragile. Wind can extinguish candle, but energize a flame. That same breath of wind, which will knock this out because it hasn't improved, it hasn't become a bigger fire, it hasn't experienced, now it's a candle. Take a small fire, big fire. It hasn't had all the wood thrown onto it. You know, it hasn't gone through the, the human example, like the, it hasn't been, it hasn't stayed healthy. It hasn't maintained good relationships. It hasn't prioritized financial independence. It, it's, it's exposed to big downsides and this gust of wind comes along and it's, it's done. It's gone. The fire's done. You've blown up in financial terms. On this side though, the fire was a little bit bigger. The health was prioritized, hard conversations prioritized, did the hard thing to maybe deliver a little bit better at work, try to deliver a little bit of a better standard of living. The fire's a little bit better. And that same gust of wind, which can blow something up, can energize something else. And this is the idea of the randomness. That's the gust of wind. Completely random event, the black swan perhaps, benefiting from it rather than perishing from it. Finally, 11.15. I'm going to quickly go through, and I realize that I'm sort of just talking it. Maybe it's not so linear. Um, I hope you are a little bit entertained. So um, of the five books I mentioned, the three most well-known Black Swan and Fragility Skin in the Game. We know what skin in the game is. It's a euphemism for accountability. That saying is, is in English at least. Actually, I wonder, this is a saying in Swedish as well? No. no, it's not saying Swedish. No, no. You know what it means. That makes sense, right? Skin in the game. Well, skin in the game is yeah. to have a literal piece of you exposed in your decisions. You're, you're accountable for your decisions. You might reap a ridiculous upside, but should that decision go wrong, you must be accountable for the downside. This is a this is an ancient notion. In the book, he talks about Hammurabi's law. 4,000 BC Mesopotamia. In the center of town stood a, a pillar where they had the laws of society written onto it. This is where an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth comes from. In ancient Mesopotamia, uh, I'm just saying, like this is an ancient. It's 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 such important glue for a society, because the minute we're not accountable for our downside, the worst part of our nature. We'll try to get away with more and more and more and more. We see this. I mean, you can look at Swedish society. I'm sure you can look inside your own organization. You can look in your own interpersonal relationships with people. If you know you can get away with something, you know, you're more likely to push the edges. And then if you're, you know, really going to go for it, like the uh, Bob Rubin trade, which I'll get to. Uh, you can, yeah. So in, in ancient Mesopotamia, one of the laws of society was that an architect the construction, very high status position in society. Now, this is 4,000 BC. So if you can build stuff, you're an extremely valuable person. Um, if the house collapsed, 
and people in that house died because of the fault of the architect, that architect and his family corresponding to the people that died in the house would be put to death. It's, it's complete accountability for your actions. Um, now, thankfully, we don't have as severe accountability heuristics these days, but, um, you know, the enforcement of the law is an idea of skin the game. But, I mean, you think about this in the context of um, consulting firms. Taleb speaks in largely cynical language when he speaks about consultancy, because in his eyes, and I will say clearly, they're not my opinion, but in his eyes, um, you're not accountable for your actions. You might recommend a procedure, get the paycheck, back onto the next client. What if your recommendations actually resulted in your recommendation was to go into this market, turns out this market was a complete waste of money. Do you then come back, return your check and say, oh, we're actually also going to compensate you for the downside? No, you don't. No, you shouldn't either because it's understood what the value of the consultancy is going to be. Maybe using many consultants, they understand. Anyway, nonetheless, but that's because of that uh, dichotomy. And the sim does speak about different professions with a notion of having accountability for decisions, what you do, your actions, so forth. Okay. I was thinking uh, a lot about this uh, if, uh, when it comes to political commentators. Absolutely. In the news. Absolutely. I think it, that will be like a good example, uh, like a program that was, was like, I think it was a week before Russia invaded Ukraine. There was two like senior political uh, analysts on uh, on a news channel who said, no, it's not going to happen because of one, two, three, yep. four. Yep. And then the week after uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, and then the same commentators, political analysts, mm -hmm. came to the news and they were like, yeah, and one of them were like, um, yeah, I know I admit that I made a mistake, but here's how I can explain uh, how I made a mistake. And the other one was like, he didn't even take that responsibility. He was like, yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that um, I said that Putin will not invade uh, Ukraine. And in my opinion, this is not a real invasion. So that's <laughs> so anyway, zero skin in the game there. hundred <laughs> percent, without a doubt. And that's um, it, it's so clear when people right up the top are not accountable for the decisions that they make. And again, like there are measures of society, maybe they shouldn't be. If you are the president of a country that decides to send your people off to war, should you then also be there fighting? You know, no. In the old days, yes, absolutely. The generals took the most risk and they had the highest status in society because of it. But, you know, these days it's less so. But 100%, we will listen to the same political voice, you know, yeah. or the same commentator that will say with absolute authority that one thing is going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. And they don't lose all their credibility. Yes. When if, if, the, if it worked properly, they would lose their credibility or at least a bit of their credibility. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I suppose it's like... A, the consequence of something else, the fact that we as consumers will still consume these things. We're not yes. sending the right signals into the market no. as to how we want it to behave. Because in truth, we don't want boring middle of the middle of the line commentary that's always safe and always hedging its bets and always reporting exactly the news. In Australia, SBS is the state news channel. And we also have private media, like contrary to Sweden. You have some, but not really. And um, no one watches it. No one watches it, although it is the absolute best news if you want to be informed, but it's boring and it's unentertaining. And so no one watches it. And I think Sweden's got a great setup because of, um, you know, SVT, 
um, is entertaining as much as news you know really can be, but it's also, in my estimation, pretty run down the middle, straight line. I don't know, maybe you have your own political bias to attach onto it, but I would say so compared to the American system or the United Kingdom system, where you're coming in for a political opinion. You're not coming in for what the uh, news of the day is. And with Noam Chomsky being invited back on the podcast, put Jordan Peterson in the same light. You know, they're entertaining people. And for these reasons, like they're going to come back and back again, even though, but the problem is us as consumers are not sending the right signals back. If we wanted them to be accountable for the downside, we'd stop listening to them and we'd maybe ask them to be accountable, but unfortunately we don't. But that is obviously another topic. But um, 100%, it comes back to this notion of being accountable for your decision. It's a euphemism for accountability, having skin in the game. And again, like much of the other stuff, it can be extrapolated all the way down to interpersonal relationships, all the way up to how we interact with our government. Bob Reuben trade. So, one must own their risk. In 2007, the uh, mortgage crisis kicked off in America and trailed on from there a uh, global economic downturn. Very few countries escaped recession. What happened? In the seven to eight years before it, there were a number of financial firms taking extremely risky bets and in those extremely risky bets, they were receiving a lot of upside. They were being very well compensated. This guy, Robert Rubin, made $120 million alone in, I think, two years before GFC, right? This is, um, I forget it. I should have written it down. I forget his exact position. He's now um, in government, right? So no accountability whatsoever. But because of the acts of Bob Rubin and hundreds, potentially thousands of other very, very savvy financial traders. They leveraged up risks to the point where, as we all know, the um, market crashed. Now, when the market crashed, it was the taxpayer, people completely ignorant and certainly not involved financially in the decisions that led up to the crash, who ended up through their tax money bailing out the banks. If there was skin in the game, these traders not only would have had to return the money they made, they would have gone out of business and they would have gone bankrupt because all the, the rest of the money they had would have been paid back into the system to try and account for the um, asymmetry that's happened there. So the bankers privatized the upside and socialized the downside. Zero skin in the game. They did not, they were not accountable for the risks that they took. I got a question about this investment. You have this black swan strategy when he invests, is he very wealthy now or? Yeah. So yeah. it paid off to have this black swan. Yeah. Strategy. Yeah. He yeah. talks about it as the barbell strategy. He'd have five to 10% of his assets at any given time yeah. exposed to extremely risky, high upside um, events like yeah. the downturn of the market and the rest of his money in the most boring investment possible, which is US bonds. So he was safe. Yeah, with the absolute majority of his money yeah. and expose himself to make the big upside um, on the other events. I'm not sure his net worth yeah. is, but he yeah, he made a few money oh, okay. that he yeah, talks yeah, about. Yeah. And that's yeah. why he retired and just writes books now and yeah. is a Twitter bot. Many <laughs> <laughs> hacking on everyone. Yeah, in terms of uh, what we do that mo well, sometimes like marketing campaigns, 
So a black swan example, uh, example can be uh, campaigns with a little bit of a shock value uh, in the content uh, that creates uh, some polarization in the market. But in the long run, we'll see that how the, the future of the market was actually influenced by that polarization created by that campaign with a, with a bit of a shock value. Now, uh, regardless of like how one can see this in ethical terms, but this is something that has been applied. I'm not sure if we have done it, but um, this has been applied in the market uh, throughout the years. Can you think of uh, an example? I think well, when I read uh, Ryan Holiday's uh, book, um, Trust Me, I'm Lying. So he, he wrote a book that was about his experiences as a, like a shock value marketer. And then he says, oh, I, I, I want to, I don't want to continue that life anymore. So he invested in other things. He became like a self-help uh, guru there. But he wanted to, um, to market a film, a very like low budget indie film that one of his friends created. He created this uh, uh, like, like a billboard with a, with a very polarizing message. I'm not sure what it was. But that actually led to that <laughs> that uh, low budget indie film becoming uh, like the bestseller because everybody wanted to see it through that. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. It, it um, and like you said, how it that shock value might then be normalized into everyone else's marketing yeah. campaign. That theme of survivorship bias yeah. is rich throughout all the five books. I mean, as 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 you well know, yeah. the part of noticing the randomness is also realizing the biases where is survivorship bias and why is something taken at face value when it's just the result of you know copying iterations of, of, for, for so long in a certain film right so how do you uh like for us that we usually look at the past data and we build some predictive models to predict the future of the data um uh, do you think there is a way to take into account these types, these types of topics like black swan and um, accommodating a degree of randomness mm. and, and and the future outcomes of these randomness into our work. Uh, is it is it something that you think? <laughs> cool, cool. Uh, That's a amazing. consulting firm that has focus on customer analysis. Yeah, look. Uh, so, needs to consider yeah if if i could confidently answer that question yeah. i'd have my own billion dollar firm you know yeah. so uh i don't think that's the case that i could recommend something yeah. but to think about it is a hundred percent worthwhile mm. and noticing for instance in your past data where is the noise you know what what can you just dismiss as being um a waste of time <laughs> or bad variables that's going to and maybe get rid of predictive models altogether, but I know you can't. Like, there's a great anecdote in there about um, uh, firms consulting their clients and offering as a heuristic to the investment, this is in oil and gas, um, a huge part of the financing is going to come off to, well, what's the price of oil going to be in two years? We don't know the price of oil tomorrow morning, you know? So in, in this case, that heuristic is is absolutely worthless. In fact, it's, it's worse than worthless. It damages the model because you don't know what the price of oil is. In 2019, they had zero, absolutely no no one. There was no trader in the world who would have mapped the um, 
would have mapped the history of oil since 2019. For example, yes, there would have been hundreds of uh, firms out there that relied on the price of oil in the future heuristic as a very important variable to the investment money that they're taking, um, you know, as you all well know. So I don't know, to be honest. But to think about it, this is probably the answer. I would make an uh, assumption about that coming back to one. You have some historic data that we get. I mean, I would have some, but like the pandemic, that was a black swan, I guess. I mean, they destroyed a lot of data. I mean, we have historic data we basically can't use because mm. it's not relevant for, for the current time. Yeah. How can you predict the future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past? You know, like even looking at what previous black swans might have been is also, you know, next to useless. Yeah. It, it, because we don't know what it's going to be. That's in the nature that's something different, something new. Exactly. It's exactly in the nature of it. Um, Taleb actually speaks specifically about COVID. And I don't know if this, how much of this is him being a shock jock or not, him just wanting to get attention. But he said COVID actually wasn't a black swan because we had um, lots of, for the longest time, we've known that the risk of a pandemic or at least a, a highly contagious virus is, is, is possible. And we didn't create the right um, systems and barriers to somehow isolate and prevent them and so forth. What Bill Gates spoke about in his latest TED talk, I don't know if you've seen, it's like a model for how we can police viruses in the future. But for example, if tomorrow we're in this room, we uh, mutated the COVID virus into a 50% mortality, that's a huge black swan, clearly. I mean, but it's, yeah, the, the mutation going from what it is to something completely unthinkable, that is the black swan. I don't know if that helps. Talking about predicting modeling or things that we do, like predicting in the future, I mean, the comfort to narrow, and that's what you can open up at least, please. So you can. Sometimes we talk about adding a little bit of randomness into it, so we actually get new data when the models keep updating. So you don't just do historical, nice little lying on the couch thing, mm. or the same way crossing the road, or the, the same way you can actually take different paths to mm -hmm. cross the road. Mm. So we add a little bit of openness into the outcomes and allow new information to come in, you're more open to if, maybe not the big black swan, but the little hatchlings comes around in this. Yeah, exactly what you just described is the process of becoming more anti-fragile, doing the new thing, exposing the downside of the new thing. You take the new road, you add a new variables. Oh, that didn't work out. Well, now we know not to do it. So 100%, 100%. I mean, crossing the street and then suddenly you see different type of car coming there, not the usual ones mm -hmm. driving past. You get a little bit wary. Mm -hmm. Strange. But wait a bit. Then I cross. Yeah. 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 You uh, the minority rule. Yeah. Uh, is it, do we just have a very like, yes absolutely other that is also absolutely this is a this is this is a really Really interesting one. I, I just I skipped over because I was not sure I was relevant to you guys, but I'm sure you'd be able to map it onto your own lives. Mm. I was recently listening to Malcolm Turnbull's autobiography. He's an Australian former prime minister. He was kicked out of his own party. And as I was listening to it, I was like, bang, this is the lips minority rule at play in real life. The minority rule is when an intransigent minority, three to four percent of the population, 
um, their, their immovability on a topic will sway the behavior of the other 96% who are kind of movable to it. Examples, peanuts. You can't take, you, you can't have peanuts in schools, even though only a minority are allergic to peanuts, because that's an immovable variable for the minority and a movable variable for the majority. So peanuts are now in schools, they can't be in airplanes. Uh, kosher, if you look at most soft drinks, they're kosher, even though, how many people in this room are kosher, right? The kosher is an, the people that demand that it be kosher is an absolute minority, but it was cheaper for the manufacturers to just create both rather than one of each, because it doesn't make a difference to us. So all soft drinks are kosher. Um, I really want to get this right, because it is a fascinating one if you, what happened to Malcolm Turnbull was, he was on the Conservative Party in Australia. And there were a few people in here, and he was pro climate change. And there were a few people in his party who uh, I think, pro uh, as in, as in, he believes it. He <laughs> believes it. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of policy of Australia spending shitloads of money to change their energy because we're one of the um, per capita, one of the highest carbon emitting countries in the world. Uh, it's embarrassing. We shouldn't be. We have, sorry for swearing. We have loads of natural resources, natural gas, access to more solar than any other country. Yet nonetheless, we're, we're, um, we import most of our oil. It's, it's really silly. Anyway, in his party, um, there was an absolute immovable minority who were completely against um, Turnbull's climate change policy. And they were willing to, and because they were immovable, uh, they were willing to convince the rest of the party that could be moved on it to change their policy as well and kick Turnbull out. It's just an example of an immovable minority overpowering a movable majority. Can you think about um, minority rule elsewhere? Sorry? Can you think of the minority yes. rule? The reason that I brought it up, we have like seven minutes, right? Yeah. Um, was uh, from an old colleague, Albi, uh, was explaining uh, one day that I've actually, I'm not, he said like, I'm not a vegetarian, but I happen to eat mostly vegetarian food. And then I asked why, and I said, my daughter is vegetarian. So we just started in the family, and I started by cooking more vegetarian for her. And it became a thing. Now we're, all of us are actually becoming vegetarian. And that was the time that I was reading one of Talib's books, which was explaining uh, the minority rule when it comes to vegetarian. So uh, the, the example that he gave was the kosher food, uh, that it starts with someone that truly believes in it. So because the vegetarian people and, and vegans, they, they actually believe that they, they are like more like believing people, they're confident in what they believe, and, and so they're more assertive and say, this is what I believe. And this culture uh, can spread much faster when it comes to a minority that, should, that are confident that we believe in something. An example of this was uh, like the Bolsheviks during the, the, the October Revolution, because they were in the minority, but they actually believed in something. And that spread and became the majority rule uh, in the long run. So that was interesting that Arvid said something that was that I was actually just reading about. Halal meat in the UK, another great example. Yeah. Um, simply just because it's too expensive to create two different types of meat, and there was significant enough of an immovable minority that now in many, many places throughout the UK, you're just going to by default be served halal meat. Yeah. 
um, in political parties. I, I had examples, but I can't. My website is now too slow to load, apparently, which is not good. But um, um, a think about as an example for why both left and right are now largely extreme and there's way less center. Yeah. The minority on the hard left and the hard right are immovable in their positions to the point where the rest of the behavior of people in that, in that party just succumb to it and because they're movable you know so um the in much in much better language to let describes it yeah was it anything else ryan or no that was all okay. that was all for me yes really interesting yeah, 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 yeah. i really enjoyed it okay amazing. yeah okay before you go just one more plea for you to please subscribe to the curious worldview podcast it is the absolute best thing you could ever do for me. It is the top link in the episode description. Cheers and ciao.